welcome back to the Unstable Fluid podcast, where I'm the unstable and he's the fluid. <laughs> I, I, I feel like... Not really. You, you spent half of our interactions telling me I do fluids wrong. <laughs> yeah, but like, if we're going to pick one or the other, maybe I'm the unstable fluid and you're the podcast is maybe the the better way uh, around to do it. But Possibly, possibly. <laughs> How are you doing, Kat? I'm doing wonderful, thank you, Thomas. Um, yeah, it's new year, new something, I'm sure. Not necessarily me, but um, yeah, we're getting on with things. How are you? Yeah, not too bad sort of again yeah, new year new many coding bugs but actually some existing <laughs> coding bugs basically i have vaguely the same coding problems i had last year but now with a new calendar year we love the consistency it's all good it's it's nice to see things like not changing too much yeah um, everything's consistently broken yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but then there must be something new and exciting like did new semester for you mean new modules or new study or anything exciting it will do but actually technically the new semester at cardiff hasn't started yet they're oh, doing that yeah. horrible thing of exams after christmas which i never had in school i did i had like prelim prelims or i guess you call them mocks in the rest of the uk um mm. we had those in january but after leaving high school and going to university i had all our exams were before christmas so we actually got a break <laughs> It, it's worse. It's horrible for <laughs> Fortunately, I don't have to do any exams, so... That was going to be my question. Of, do, you, do you have any? How does it feel to have, like, no exams over the Christmas period at all, then? That must be nice. Actually, the last exam I did was in 2022. Oh. Because I didn't Why? have final exams in my master's, because my entire final semester was my project. All I had was a viva, but it doesn't really count as an exam. It was give a 10, 15 minute talk about my master's project and answer a couple of questions from people. Like, yeah. as far as the sit down in an exam hall exam, I haven't done one of them since 2022. Oh, fair. I mean, presumably earlier than that, if online exams or were they back in person by then? No, that was in person. My modules okay. were tiny. My ah, entire my entire year was about 40 people by that point. So. Oh, wow. Integrated master's year, so. Of course. You're very close to, I think, my last exam was similar because uh, I did some uh, modules in my second year of PhD. I think mm. that's 2021, maybe? I don't know how long I've been here anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have got some sort of, like, talk component stuff as part of the first, first year of the PhD, but none of it's exams. Like, it's all coursework, and it's not even... Like, I don't technically have to pass it, per se. It is, like, it's it's engagement is what they say they're looking for. Yeah. It, it participate, learn from it. Like, at the end of the yeah. day, it's, it's beneficial for you. So that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if, you, um, if you do miss exam halls, something that people don't necessarily realise, and not all universities do, but I think a good amount of them, as a PhD student, you are able to invigilate. So if you ever, you know, horrible. miss it... <laughs> And you want to go sit in a hall for a few hours and look at some undergrads cry, uh, that's always just, an option. Just minorly traumatise some undergrads by wandering up and down and then pausing next to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe that article that came out years ago about invigilators uh, not being behaving themselves properly was actually PhD students. Who knows? <laughs> Who um, knows? But yeah, I, I have never done it. I have friends that do. I have, a, I have an interesting... Um, 
I don't know, almost anecdote about one of the halls that they use in St. Andrews for exams, mm-hmm. which is, so it's a hall called Younger Hall, and it was, I don't know, about a century ago, I think. But what it has is it has a sprung dance floor, but they use this, they cover the floor over and they use it for exams. Mm-hmm. But what this means with a sprung dance floor is that as you put weight in the middle of it, it flexes slightly. The idea being mm-hmm. that when you're, if you're dancing, you're jumping up and down, it's less impactful on your ankles and your knees, and it, you can dance longer at higher energy. And it, it's it's great; it's lovely to dance on. But mm-hmm. it does mean that if you're at one of if you're in one of the desks in the middle of the hall, and the invigilator walks past, your desk will just go like that. <laughs> <laughs> and tip. Yeah, oh, I never had amazing. an exam in there. Um, yeah, I realized I did a visual gag on a thing that can be audio thank you for yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i got <laughs> you I got... That? <laughs> no no i think leave okay. name and shame your uh yeah, your, yeah you okay. just forgot okay. our listeners unacceptable yeah, behavior yeah they've since gone to they put all of the like they'll have multiple exams in the hall so they'll like you have to go down specific lines if depending on your module but when you didn't have mm-hmm. to do that and you had like one of the bigger exams in that hall apparently people could choose their seats and the people that did that were members of the Celtic Society, so the Scottish Country Dance Society that I used to run, because they knew about the sprung dance floor, they'd all rush to the edges of the floor <laughs> so that it didn't tip as uh, much as the invigilators went past. I mean, that must be such a like psychological trauma to everyone else in the room. If you just see a bunch of people like run to one end of the exam hall, you're like, what am I missing? What is happening? Um, you could do some really interesting... like. Um, I don't know, psychology on <laughs> like the sheep mentality of like, if enough people run to that side of the hall, does it get this like conspiracy that it's lucky or something? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just pass down the generations. Definitely <laughs> not <laughs> my area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have an interest. No, 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 it could be. You have enough people rushing in one direction and you can start using fluids to model population dynamics. You can. That hall is too small, but you can. <laughs> I know if we fit enough people in there. Yeah, but with the logic of it having exam desks. You have flow around solid objects. Yeah, fair. Um, Shall we move on? Because the first thing we were going to talk about today is um, kind of PhD applications and interviews and that sort of thing. Because assuming that all things goes, all things go well, and this comes out when we intend for it to come out, it's approximately the season of people doing PhD applications and interviews, at least in the UK. It is. It is indeed. Um, in other words, where I, I was I this time last year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was a few more years ago than that, so I, I don't have the fear, I think, or like the, the, the panic response whenever I think about it anymore. I, I think more of like, oh yeah. Oh, good to know that goes away. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Um, especially when you start seeing other people come for their interviews, mm. and then you get to be the voice that's like, this is what the vibe of the department is, and this is, you know, it's fine, you'll be fine. And then they go away and come back looking terrified, and you're like, you did great. Um, you did, probably. It'll, it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how, from your personal experience, how does it feel like a year on from your interviews? Do you have any more, like, insight into how you think they went? I I don't know if I have more insight into how I think they went. I think I maybe have more insight as to why most of them didn't go well enough. But I think most of that insight is is based on the fact that the last interview I did, which is the one I did for my CDT at Cardiff, CDT being Centre for Doctoral Training, specific type of PhD, um, Mm -hmm. the one I did then, I did at the end of my master's project when I had 
results. I had done analysis and I could actually talk about doing the research. Whereas my other ones, I didn't even have data yet. So I had very, whenever, when they went to, can you talk about a research project that you've done or are doing? I had pretty much nothing to talk about because I was about four weeks in. I had no data yet. Yeah, I, I think that's something that um, it's definitely important to be aware of in like when in your academic year or academic career you do your interviews, you're going to be saying very different things. Um, yeah. It's why actually people who leave academia and then come back later um, will often have a very good breadth of experience to talk about at their interview because they've already completed, say, a dissertation. They maybe have done projects. Um, whereas, yeah, as you say, if you're interviewing really early in your final academic year, the amount of research experience you might have is very slim. Um, and it, it's why I think academics, if they know that you're interested in continuing on to do a PhD as a, an undergraduate, they really strongly encourage doing like summer research projects. Mm. That being said, not everyone can do a summer yeah. research project and you're not necessarily putting yourself out if you don't have one. But yeah, as you say, the, the, the amount that you have to talk about will vary. Um, yeah. It's just how you spin it. But obviously it's a lot easier to spin. I have something than I don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the thing that I really didn't appreciate, and to be fair, this may be selection bias of I'm in one department at one university, but I, I don't know. It also kind of works with my CDT as well because there's a I've had that cohort as well that I can sort of notice the same thing with, which is that the perception I had in my final year of undergrad at what is a very academic university was that, oh, everyone who wants to do a PhD is going to go and do it right out of undergrad or right out of their integrated master's. And the, basically, I don't think what... I think what I'm trying to say, I don't think I realised how common it is to go away and come back. Whereas now that I'm in... The first year of the PhD, I'm like, oh right, I'm actually maybe in the minority, or it's at least roughly equal split of people that have come straight from doing an integrated master's or a master's degree, and people who've like gone away into industry or have gone and done something else for a year, even if it's just a gap year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it there's definitely a fear, I think, that oh, there's a not stigma i don't know what word i'm looking for here but like there's this perception that if you deviate from the academic trajectory that you're missing out um and it's something that you see at each sort of level mm -hmm. of like why did you take a gap year why why did you not go to university straight away why did you not go straight into a master's why did you not go straight into a phd um and the one i had actually was um in scotland why didn't you do direct entry so why didn't you skip the first year if you could yeah yeah it's like you should be chasing that sort of lecture permanent lectureship position as hard as you possibly can or you're not really invested and that's a load of rubbish <laughs> um yep. and luckily people are realizing this um and actually yeah seeing it from the other side of like who is good at research and, and not necessarily uniquely but like there's not that big of a difference in you're not missing out you're going and getting life experience every single thing that you do is experience and you can pull different aspects of your you know history to help in academia and you can flip it the other way as well um some of the best people i know 
that like came to the research and we're really on top of it like coming from an undergrad your time management skills are there's a very broad range of time management skills yeah. i would say um and especially if you test well at undergrad you can get away with that and then suddenly you're thrust into a phd where your time is your own but there isn't every you know three months an exam to keep you on mm-hmm. track it's you have to be an adult <laughs> and still working on that in. by the way <laughs> <laughs> no comment um <laughs> but the people who've come in from industry where they've worked with say clients or they've ha- worked on short-term projects and they have that sort of you know actual experience of seeing things through to completion they brings this really good experience of time management organizational skills um efficient meetings the amount mm-hmm. of times people will like organize meetings in a schedule and you're like this could be an email um mm-hmm. pulling across from industry into academia is actually really really useful and yeah. i think that they have this advantage in that respect that people who've come straight through um don't the the flip side of that then being that the people who've come straight through from academia say if you've just finished a master's or an undergrad and you're going straight into a phd it's all fresh in your memory um yeah. whereas people who've spent some number of years in industry might not remember you know their second year analysis module for example yeah definitely but at the same time that isn't always a bad thing because what you end up doing in the phd can be wildly different to what you've just been doing in the final years of your undergrad like i spent the last sort of six months of my undergrad doing star formation and i'm now doing galaxy evolution which is complete a completely different area of astrophysics that i have had to spend so much time reading up on because it's not a thing i focused on in my undergrad that that is exactly it it don't know necessarily what you're going to be doing straight away especially as part of a training center where you get this training year the idea being that you have time to catch up um and something that people don't talk about a lot i think as well when you're doing a phd yes you have one main project and if you're not part of a training center you might get hired on a specific project um but there is going to be some element of training in that typically about the 100 hour mark um in maybe your first year or the first half of the phd um, so you have time to take extra courses during that period. If, if there's a gap in your knowledge that you feel like you could benefit from improving, there are resources available in most institutions to help with that. And if there's not, something not in your university, there are oftentimes groups of universities that will like share lectures mm-hmm. um, at the graduate level. Um, I think the one that Cardiff is part of is called Magic. Um, I'm I can't not sure. remember what the one I'm part of is. I think that's math specific, but... I know that in Scotland there is the Scottish University's Physics Alliance, or SUPA. So no one's expecting you to kind of know everything straight off the no. bat. Um, it's the, the entire, like, you can think of a PhD, the entire process as a training thing. Um, something I'm definitely telling myself at the end of it is, like, I have learned so much in the last four years, and I know I have so much more to learn. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's being being faced with something that you don't know isn't always a bad thing. It's just, especially going back to the sort of interview side of things, it's knowing how to frame it. Yeah. It's acknowledging that. Don't hide it. Don't lie on your CV because they will find out. Oh, yeah. But framing it properly. Yeah. When it comes to interviews, the the interviewers, they've they've done many of these before. They're, um, (sighs) I'm trying to put it politely. (laughs) 
<laughs> Their BS detectors are really finely tuned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they, you get a lot of people applying, um, so they have to be able to cut it down quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and that can work in your favour and against you sometimes. Um, but yeah, like the, the thing that I find particularly amusing, so my training centre, Amber is the Statistical Applied Maths at Bath. Um, and the kind of key thing in that is Statistical Applied Maths, which is kind of a merge of stats, probability, modelling. Um, it kind of brings a load of maths together to have like a real application. Um, but I saw it and I went, oh god. So physics. I... Shut up. <laughs> I haven't done any stats since my A-levels. So in my undergrad, we had uh, intro to probability that everyone had to do. And then we had to choose between statistics one or mechanics one. Yeah, in my interview, they were like, right, so you want to be part of Sambo. Uh, what's your stats background? We can't find your stats modules on your transcript. I said to a probabilist, oh, does intro to probability count? Uh, the answer was no, but it's sort of like, okay, the immediate next question, which hopefully if you're thinking about interviews, you should know what it was, was, okay, well, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to tackle a stats problem mm. if you've never done any stats? And I think I said something along the lines of like, well, hopefully because it's a CDT, there's a lot of training involved. And the thing that I have got a lot of is fluid dynamics and applied modeling. So if I'm faced with a problem that's like a statistical issue, hopefully I can bring something from the applied side that maybe the statisticians haven't thought of um, and try to frame the skills that I do have in a way that's like, okay, I'm not who you're looking for to solve this problem, but maybe I can give you some unique insight that you wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, I got the PhD, obviously. I don't know whether that cinched it, but it's just that mentality of like, I think my gut reaction was to just be like, oh, okay, I'll see myself out. Sorry to waste your time. Um, but you have to kind of back yourself aggressively. Don't come off cocky or like, yeah. oh, I don't need it. Like, who needs stats? Am I right? Don't do that. They don't like that <laughs> Definitely don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you can shift the things, the skills that you do have in this very positive way. And I think that is something that is going to be a really big, like, indicator of someone who's willing to be a bit uncomfortable and sit in that area of I don't know as much as other people in this room but I'm going to try um, mm. and I think especially looking at the academic landscape people willing to acknowledge that they don't know everything are going to be crucial to improving the overall environment oh definitely and uh, we can probably talk at length about that at some point but I feel like that's going to send us into a rabbit hole it's going to take far too much time <laughs> Yeah. Maybe we put that on the list for a future episode. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. I, uh, I, I definitely agree with with that about being upfront when you don't know something or don't have a skill that they're talking about them expecting you to have. Because ultimately, but yeah, one of the questions I got asked in one of my interviews is actually my interview at the University of Oxford, which was my first uh, real train wreck of all the interviews. Cambridge had gone okay, but that one was the the train wreck. Um, but one of the first questions that they asked me was, right, your degree is in astrophysics. What has that not included that somebody who's done a physics degree would have done? Okay. I'm like, how do you... Like, do they just want a list? I'm like... <laughs> it's a really odd question to ask. Um, but I think... The, the way that I should have answered it was, well, I didn't do this thing on laser optics, but I did do X, Y, Z things that would at least mm. let me do, answer questions on that sort of thing 
because realistically the, what they're looking for is people to be able to work from first principles you understand the basic physics of what's going on and can work from there yeah. problem as i said well they didn't teach me laser optics but i, I don't think i said op i think, don't think i said laser i think i just said well i didn't do much optics to which the observe the observational astronomer that i was talking to said they didn't teach you optics i'm like i wasn't finished but then i panicked <laughs> yeah yeah it's a lot of times it's not even trying to catch people out i think at at undergrad, maybe interviews are slightly different, but at PhD level, it's like we are try just trying to find the best fit for this role. So the questions, hopefully, aren't coming from a bad place. So it is that sort of like, tell us your gaps in the knowledge, um, and we'll go from there. Um, but yeah, the the nerves taking over, really, mm. really bad. Um, the nerves thing, especially when you're somebody who's not really had to do interviews before, because I had no interviews in my undergrad, and then there is. Particularly with that one uh, at Oxford, it is that sort of thing of universities have reputations, and there's already that there can already be that feeling with places like that that mm, I don't belong here, or I maybe don't belong here. And as soon as something that mm. sort of something that would trigger a sort of nervous response, yeah, <laughs> can be a bit of a yeah, bit of a interesting thing to deal with. Yeah, and it is a big thing, and um. Something I found interesting, so the interviews where I didn't feel went quite so well and the, the offers I didn't get given um, were all big interview days. So they were... Okay. Um, they have, like, one day where everyone comes in. Whereas right. the interviews that went really well for me were ones where it was small groups or just one-on-one -on -one conversations. So seeing other people interviewing... I think had a big factor in in how stressed I was because suddenly I'm talking to these people that I'm competing against in some way, and you know the imposter syndrome kicks in and it it's very like oh god what I I'm not as clever as these people and these people are chatting and everyone's just like nerding out about maths because that's what mathematicians do and suddenly they're like oh I don't I didn't know that I didn't know that and that put me in a bad way I think before an interview whereas yeah smaller groups or the situations where I got a chance to talk to the PhD students the the Samba interview, we had cake. All, all the PhD students um, had cake beforehand, and I, it was just a social situation for the PhDs. And that was really nice, and that like, calmed me down in a way. Whereas everyone in their mm. suits getting ready for Oxford interviews, and everyone's like, oh, did you know? Did you revise this? Do you know this? Oh, God, they asked this in this interview. It, like, it's like going into an exam. Everyone has their own kind of way of yeah. prepping for it. Um. Yeah, and actually, now that you say that, now that you say that, it was the same. I hadn't noticed that before, but the ones that I really didn't do as well at were the ones that were big interview days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hadn't. I don't think I'd noticed that before, but I think it makes a difference. I I think. Yeah, like the the one that I got was the chillest interview because it was like quarter of an hour on zoom it was my last one like the like there was no i don't know hyping up before it <laughs> yeah um and like there are going to be people that really enjoy those big environments where you get to just like nerd out with loads of people and um you know i think there are aspects of that that's really nice because there have been people that i met on interview days where neither has got that position but i've seen them at conferences later on and like that's mm. really cute you get to network really early on um but it's knowing what works for you um, and kind of yeah. adapting your expectation going into it. 
match. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. But uh, I feel like we've we've spent quite a lot of time talking about interviews at this point. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe if you could sum up the one key bit of advice for somebody that's sort of maybe being faced with a barrage of PhD PhD interviews, or maybe even just one interview, what would be the the big thing you would say to them? The main thing I think that is important is that you're interviewing them as well. And I I know that that is potentially, they might have been told this already, but I think it is something that is so important to remember is like, if you go into an interview and you learn in that interview that the position isn't exactly what you thought it was, or you don't click with the supervisor in the way that you thought you would, or I actually had this, I went into an interview and I was like, I'm applying for this topic. And they were like, oh, we're not hiring for that topic. We're, We're actually doing this topic. I didn't want that. I don't want to spend four years of my life doing that. So I was like, thank you for your time. I finished the interview. And then I was like, don't give me an offer. (laughs) Um, It's so important because at the end of the day, you're the one doing it for four years of your life, potentially more, potentially less. But like, it's a significant portion of your life you're spending on it. So yes, it's okay to have nerves and, you know, all of the normal interview stuff. But at the end of the day, it's your choice and if it's not something that you want then it's okay to get to that point and pull out yeah definitely what about you what's your one key bit of advice i think my main bit of advice would be broadly similar which is that you're not just um you're not just interviewing them you're also you're kind of interviewing the whole perspective phd as as a whole so it's not just the project it's also the group it's the supervisor it's the university and the department and the place that it's in the the thing that i insisted on doing with everywhere i had applied was i wanted to attend the interviews in person because i didn't want to move somewhere for four years that i'd never seen before because the vibe of a place can be really important so i i think that's something to think about as well is you've got to consider the whole package of the PhD. And generally speaking, I'd say don't worry about being too picky about prestige. Mm. I think prestige is overrated. Yeah, no, definitely. I, you raised such a good point. Like, not only are you doing that project, but you're living there. That's that's your experience. That's your, you know, uh, those are your colleagues. That's going to be your network. That's going to be, you know, you have to pay rent in this place, potentially. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's so important and yeah, very, very astute, Thomas. We've talked about interviews. Let's actually roll back in the process a little bit, which is in completely the wrong order Mm -hmm. and, um, talk about the actual application stage. So I'm actually going to go completely off piste from what we have in our little plan for this and say, how did you find places to apply to? How did you find projects, potential potential projects at universities? So I believe the first thing I did was went up to a lecturer that I really liked and went, I want to do a PhD. I like this topic in particular. Are you doing anything? Um, and that led to a conversation of some of them said, yes, here's a project internal to the university I was already at. Uh, and some of them said, no, here are some other people that I think you should look at. That was a really good sort of first point, but obviously I'm staying, that was very in like one network. That was a lot of places at Cardiff. 
um, and then people that worked with the people at Cardiff. Um, the next thing I did was talk to uh, other PhD students who I'd like my, my tutors um, and people I knew in the department and was like, what do I do? <laughs> I think Google had to apply for a PhD. Um, and that then made, led me to findaphd.com, which is a website right. that has a load of PhDs in a load of different subjects on it. And universities kind of post, it's kind of like a job search site, but for PhDs. Mm. Um, and then it was a case of, if I couldn't find something I liked on that, so I found a few things I was kind of interested in. I went through a load of university websites and Googled on or searched on each university page, research here, postgrad here, any PhDs off on offer. That was a nightmare. Yep. Um, and I strongly don't recommend doing it because for maths at least, I believe there are 73 universities offering PhDs across the UK and they all have varying website designs. And they're almost all terrible. Uh, you said it, not me. Oh, I do not care if anyone judges me for this. University websites are awful. Almost all of them. And actually, the, the more unforgivable thing about university websites is that they will do a redesign and make it worse. But anyway, I digress. I went through a very similar... Um, I went through a very similar process to you. My first protocol was the guy that I'd done my summer project with and was going to be doing my master's project with. And I was like, I'm interested in this stuff. Any chance you'd be offering any PhD projects in this area? Um, and that did lead to an application um, for a project. Um, I spoke to somebody else and then sort of worked out that their research area wasn't quite for me. Um, but yeah, that's sort of my initial protocol. I did not find findaphd.com or dot whatever the hell uh -huh. it is. Um, yeah, I, I did not find findaphd.com. I did find jobs.ac.uk, which does have some some PhD stuff on it. A lot of it is more seniors or postdocs and lectureships and such. Yeah. But there are some PhD things on it. Um, but even once I... I think I did then later find findaphd.com, but... What I also found was that a lot of PhDs are not advertised on there. Yep. Which was a pain as well. Um, and then I kind of fell down the same rabbit hole of, I'm going to look up different universities. Problem is that as much as you can find list of physics departments, it is way harder to find list of astronomy departments or astronomy groups within physics departments. Um, so I I don't know. The way I found a lot of, uh, a lot of things I was going to, Sort of look at universities and um, see if they had stuff. Was I went through the papers that I was looking at for my master's project pre-review? Like, like that's in the UK, that's in the UK, that's in the UK, and went down all of them. Okay. Not the way, not the best way to do it. I found out there was groups like Southampton and stuff that did not collaborate with the other groups I was I'd found. Um, Southampton and a few other places that would have had groups that may have been interesting, and I got to them too late. But yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare trying to find these PhD places. Every university's website is different and every application system is different. Some of them are okay. Some of them are awful. Not looking at anyone in particular. Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they ignored my application and oh, they made me go through all these stupid hoops. <laughs> that's sad. That is sad. Um, yes, I'm still salty. I mean, yeah, one of the CDTs I was really excited about got didn't get refunded and I still sulk at the university oh. for it. I'm glad I'm, I'm, glad I'm mm. happy with where I am. 
I did. I I'm very fortunate that I really enjoyed my PhD. But yeah, yeah, still just our memes from interviews. Yeah, I will play devil's advocate for the universities and say that the expectation is on the person, like maybe the grant holder, who do that um, and put out the interview, the PhD thing, um, application, mm. and advertise it and on top of standard workloads of admin that researchers have to do anyway there isn't one organized like central department admin person that does that necessarily um i agree with that but it doesn't ex that doesn't excuse the universities that do big interview days no because they should be advertising it and a lot of them weren't yes yeah. you had to go to their department's website on their university website and then find the bit yeah. And as we've established, it is hard to find things on university websites. Yeah. Something that I always wondered about, and maybe it's the like cynic in me, but I'm like, is that a pre-filtering? Like, for universities that typically get a lot of applications, say, I wonder sometimes whether or not the like how hidden the application is. Is it like some big conspiracy to get rid of people who are like mildly interested? You only have the people that have the time and energy to do that. Um and there's a whole stack of reasons why that's a terrible filtering system. I'd like to think that it's not pre-filtering. We can hope. Um, but luckily, there are people in the world that are willing to do something about it. Don't know why I went to news presenter voice. I don't know. Can, can, can I can, can I segue to... The yeah, yeah, go yeah! on. Um, so <laughs> I hated the interview process so much, and it wound me up so, so much um, that I said no more. I, I put my foot down, I had a little tantrum, and I was like, right, maths, PhDs in the UK. Had your Gandalf moments. Everyone <laughs> shall pass. Accessibility should never be the limiting factor to someone wanting to do a PhD. Like, I think everyone should have all of the information as easy as possible. And just because some unis can pay for really nice websites and really beautiful designs, and they have, you know, marketing teams for it, and then other universities, it's just one guy who's really passionate about getting everyone in, but they don't have time or money to do so. That should not be the limiting factor. So I got together with another PhD student in maths and we made an event called PhD Your Way. The idea being that it's your route into a PhD. Um, so we took the like job fair model of like, let's bring all of the jobs to one place. <laughs> and we did that for PhDs. So I have successfully for the last two years I'm going to use the word bullied uh, because I believe I have uh, over 20 universities across the UK to take part in this day and give me all their information about how to apply for their maths PhDs and get PhDs from the departments to come and talk about what it's like there um, and bring them all into one day so that applicants can have all the information side by side. So, you know, you have the information about um, like how many people are in an office in Strathclyde versus... University of East Anglia and it's side by side in the same format so you're not like scrummaging around different websites to find it um, and I'm just shocked that it didn't already exist. I have a hypothesis as to why it didn't already exist because it was a nightmare which is the sheer amount of work you put into it <laughs> unpaid I might add. <laughs> yeah uh, speaking of if anyone's listening that wants to sponsor PhD your way any companies or universities that want to give us money for next year we'd appreciate it Thank you. Hmm. Um, you can also sponsor the podcast. I don't know if we're doing that, but we are now. 
I mean, if you want to give us money, I'm not exactly going to say... Okay, I might say no, depending on who you are, but... Yeah, uh, we have standards. Low standards, but standards. So this is the event that uh, we've kicked off, and it, unfortunately, it, it does only for the minute exist in maths. Uh, if it becomes a bigger thing, which it has potential to, we could see something similar for everything else. But yeah, I, I personally spent, I think, 16 hours going through every single university website in the UK, checking whether or not they did maths undergrad, checking whether or not they did maths PhDs, uh, and finding a contact to email the university being like, hello, <laughs> give me all your information, please. It, yeah, it took me 16 hours of just sat on my laptop mm. doing that. And if every single PhD applicant is doing that, that's ridiculous. That should not be yeah. the way it is. Um, Quite frankly, the ridiculous amount of duplication of effort. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let me do it for you. Um, but specifically only for maths, unfortunately. Uh, I will yeah. continue to re-emphasize that. It would be nice if more things like that could exist, but it requires people who have the time and willingness and ability to yep. do that. Yeah. I mean, watch this space. Who knows? Maybe we, we go corporate and global and, I don't know, throw a few more buzzwords in there, but have people to do it. But hopefully, they're like... <laughs> At the very least, it shows a willingness for academics because everyone I've spoken to is like, that's amazing. We should do that. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. So, But if you're applying in the next one to two years, I would say, unless you want to do a maths PhD, I, I can't help. <laughs> it's always worth looking out for things vaguely like it, though. Yes. Things that are at least talking about even just how to find it. Yes. Which is one of the hardest things. Like, like I said, I missed out on applying to certain departments because I didn't know they had astral groups because it was badly publicized. Yeah, yeah. And I think networks are going to be the main um, thing that help in that. So depending on yeah. sort of any groups that you're in, um, there are lots of people that, like, I'm I'm not an isolated person. I'm not like, ah, oh, I'm the only one that cares about it. There are so many people that care about it. So there are loads of different mm -hmm. initiatives. Um Again, math specific because that's my background, but I can name Piscopia as one is a initiative trying to get um, women and non-binary people in maths undergrad through to PhD. Um, and they post information, they help with um, adverts and it, it supports their network. And I think there are these small isolated groups of like, if you are part of um, if whatever your sort of subject, like reach out Google, see if there are like those sorts of networks for you. Um, and that can be a really nice way because at the very least, if there's not, here's a big list of all the PhD opportunities, there might be a few PhD students that know other people. I feel like we've we've talked a fairly long length about the whole PhD application interview stuff. Shall we do the, um, shall we do the, the middle word in the podcast name and actually talk about fluids for once? Oh, scary. Yeah, go on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, pretend um, that that's not literally our jobs, but like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> What do you want to know? What okay. do you want to talk about? What's the problem? Right, I... Okay, my suggestion, and this is going to probably also encompass our problem of the week section of the... Or problem of the week? Month. Problem of the month problem section of the, of the podcast as well. Problem of the podcast. <laughs> um, well, there's so many problems of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are so many problems with the podcast, not of the podcast. Or in the podcast? Are we problems? Uh, my therapist has advised me not to answer that question. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> Okay, um, this is going to encompass the problem of the month, problem of the podcast section as well. Um, so let's talk about fluids and specifically well, what I would call RAM pressure, mm -hmm. but 
you would call drag, I think we've established. Yeah, or at the very least, I don't think I would give it its own name. I don't care enough about it to justify naming it. Um, okay. So let's start with what is it, and then we'll talk about why yeah. you care <laughs> and why I don't. Okay, so drag or ram pressure, essentially it's the force that some object feels because of the flow of a fluid hitting it, essentially. So examples would be um, the force something feels as it flies through the atmosphere or falls through the atmosphere, or the force that you feel when you... Um, the force that you feel if you dive into a swimming pool, the force from the water that slows you down, or the force that you feel when... Um, like when you're washing your hands, the force of the water on your hands. So that is all essentially the same force as a flow of a fluid, either air or water in the examples that I used there, that exerts a force on some object. Now I could go into the physical examples of what actually a force is, which is just a change of momentum. It is the um, it's the thing hitting the object and then changing direction. It's momentum being changed so you feel a force. But that may be too much detail for what we really need to discuss at the minute. I, th I think that pretty much covers it. And actually, I, I was struggling a little bit because you mentioned when we were planning the podcast, you were like, oh, let's talk about ram pressure. And I'm like, I've never heard that word before. Um, and is it one of those things that like our oh, physicists and engineers and mathematicians all care about slightly different things in the system? Or is it like we just call things differently? Um, great example of that is um, like linear regression. If you go off on that tangent, like different people do it differently and call it different things, but you're all speaking different languages but talking about the same thing um mm -hmm. and i i think the main one like personally with my fluids experience is that more often than not i don't actually care about the solid bodies so okay. it's kind of twofold when i look at flow going past something or flow acting on something um typically i'll shift frame of reference so that the thing if you if you have um flow like a ball falling say yeah. falling through the air and I'm stood watching it do that I can see that the ball is moving and the air is kind of like being pushed out of the way and then moving around it um, yeah. if I was going to model that using fluid dynamics I would fix the ball in space and I would have the air mm -hmm. rushing past it faster because it's it, relative yeah. so we look at things moving past solid objects um, more often than not with the fluid dynamics that I have done, so the modules that I've taken and the way that I've studied it, I care more about the flow than I do about the trajectory of the ball, which is why we shift that okay. frame of reference. Um, at which point the ram pressure is like, it's there, but it, I don't really care. <laughs> um, yeah, we're looking no, more at the nuances that. around the, the behavior of the fluid. Um, and then the, the other factor is like, so the, the stuff that I do in my PhD, um, I'm looking at droplets that are 0.2 of a millimeter in radius. They are tiny, tiny mm -hmm. little things that are falling. Um, yeah. And force and pressure is kind of proportional to area. Or, yeah. Uh, inversely proportional. No, proportional. Uh, force is proportional to area. Yeah. Uh, so these these tiny things are falling. The drag on that is not big. Um, if it was, yeah. rain wouldn't fall. It would just kind of hover in this really ominous, like <laughs> we'd be underneath a swimming pool kind of way. Um, so every time that, you know, I start writing out my equations, like, right, what forces are in my system, 
I throw out drag so quickly that I've never even looked at it. Um, and I'm at the point where I kind of throw out gravity as well. Like, if my droplet's already moving, the effect of gravity in that small, small, small frame isn't going to do much. Um, and I think that's kind of why I don't really think about it a lot. I get what you mean, and I think maybe the reason that ramp pressure is such a thing that I'm, I've been taught about and think about is because I'm dealing with much larger physical systems. Whereas you're dealing with things on the order of millimetres, I'm thinking about, I mean, and I'm thinking about stuff that's on the order of kiloparsecs or megaparsecs, which are millions and millions and millions and millions of kilometres. Um, so I think uh, I think that's maybe part of it. Also, the fact that mentioned physicists and engineers would both talk about ram pressure is that engineers are dealing with macroscopic things, the planes or Formula One cars that have to deal with air resistance. And then this, you'd call it drag or ram pressure, it's essentially the same thing are both important factors in those systems as well. I mean, that's not to say that like pressure isn't important to mathematical fluid dynamics at all. Um, so much of what I do is is actually pressure-based. Um, but yeah, it, it's if you're looking yeah. at sort of why you would care, um, presumably you, you mentioned Formula One, like the engineer would be like stress testing how much force can be exerted on the car before it breaks. And also how much force would be required to from like air passing over the wings of the Formula One car to stick it to the ground. Ah. Downforce um, is essentially a, a consequence of this. Yeah. Whereas the sort of like preliminarily mathematical stuff that I'm considering is like we throw out so much we care about the the broad scope of it rather than the, the nuance of like if we yeah. add ten kilos to this car it's gonna explode. Um but it's nice seeing like that broad scale from the the abstract versus like right exactly to the, you know, I don't know any units of pressure. Kilogram per meter squared? Pascal. Pascals. Like, to the Pascal. <laughs> How much force this thing can t uh, take before it explodes. It's it's a nice, like, you need all of the things to build up on each other. You, you mentioned something maybe a minute or so ago about actually saying you don't care about the solid objects. So my specific thing with RAM pressure, with what I do in my PhD, which is looking at galaxies and how they evolve, is that I have like a central galaxy surrounded by a load of gas, which we call the circumgalactic medium, which is specifically what I study. But I have a satellite galaxy, a smaller galaxy, orbiting my main galaxy and passing through that circumgalactic okay. medium. So what I have is a galaxy that has mm -hmm. gas in it. So a fluid passing through the gas that is the circumgalactic medium. So a different fluid. So I have two fluids, one fluid body held together by gravity, passing through another fluid body. Right. So as I have a fluid-fluid reaction, and the essentially you can do exactly the same thing you mentioned with the ball, of fix that galaxy in, in place, go into mm -hmm. its reference frame, and you see the gas of the circumgalactic medium flowing sort of round it, past it, in some cases yeah. through it, and it gets a headwind from that circumgalactic medium gas. Oh, okay. And what I'm specifically studying at the minute is how the pressure, the headwind pressure, the ram pressure from that circumgalactic medium gas, how that affects the gas in the galaxy. And the main, the main reaction you get there is that the gas from the circumgalactic medium actually removes the gas from the galaxy. It's called ram pressure stripping. You strip the gas away from the galaxy. Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, if you've got two fluids, like, presumably there's some, like, mixing or 
turbulence going on there. So is it instead the sort of like outer shell? You do get some healing almost. Kinda. Um. So it's, yeah, I'm still working out exactly the physics that goes on on mm-hmm. the micro scale, um, and doing a lot of reading around that. But that is essentially what happened. You get some mixing, um, and as far as I know. Some of that circumgalactic medium gas will get brought into the galaxy, but there's other stuff that will get stripped okay. away as well. Because a galaxy isn't like a point object. You've got this expansive thing. And maybe the stuff that hits the middle of the galaxy has to go to the densest regions. Maybe some of it will get held onto, but the outer layers will get stripped away because they're held on less strongly because they're further from the bulk that's of the mass. That's really cool. Yeah, that's terrifying. But that's currently what I need to look into is how... It's exactly how mm. the stuff is stripped. That's my job for next week. Very cool. You managed to sneak some actual PhD in there as well. Yeah. It <laughs> happens occasionally. But this is this is the thing, is like the same fundamental fluid phenomenon of this ram pressure or mm. a drag force does everything from keep Formula One cars on the ground to put planes in the sky to remove gas from galaxies weighing thousands of millions of times the mass of the sun yeah it's all the same phenomenon just on vastly different scales yeah no definitely there's an entire subset of um looking at sets of equations that non-dimensionalization like remove your length scale remove your time scale and then mm-hmm. suddenly you have one equation that can be applied at you know all sorts of um scales um i mean we you mentioned drag lift and then you said about planes so you now have to thomas how do planes fly okay how do planes fly right um okay so essentially i have to explain how an aerofoil works without being able to mime right okay um (laughs) right so planes have wings this much we know (laughs) but a wing isn't just like a plank of wood it's not flat a a wing is three-dimensional it has some amount of shape and essentially, what it has is two curved surfaces, a top surface and a bottom surface. So the top surface will be concave? Convex. Concave. Convex? I don't know. Con- uh, one of those. Convex. Concave is the one that bends in. Concave is a cave. It bends right? inwards. Convex is yeah, yeah. vexingly okay. outwards. I don't know. Okay, yeah. So a wing has a shape. So the top layer will be a concave curve. So it it has a curve that starts at one point, goes to a maximum point, and goes to a lower point at the end. That's the rough shape of the top of a wing. The bottom of the wing, it has this sort of upside down sine wave shape where you've got a concave, a convex part, and then a concave part. And what you get with this shape is that the top the top side of the wing, air will flow over it and it will go over that at a higher velocity, a higher speed, and therefore a lower pressure than the air going underneath the wing. Underneath the wing, it will move slower, it will have a higher pressure, and this creates some unequal pressure between the bottom of the wing and the top of the wing. And what fluids want to do is equalise pressure. So this generates a lifting force. The high pressure under the wing lifts lifts the wing and therefore lifts the aircraft into where the low pressure is, and that's how planes take off. And this lifting force requires a sufficient amount of low pressure above, high pressure below, which you only get by going fast, which is why we use jet engines. 
Beautiful. Do you know the name? Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? I mean, I followed along. I'm not an engineer. <laughs> Don't need to be an engineer. Um, I would have described the aerofoil as like it's two curves, like the lower half of a crescent moon pointing downwards, and then a ball at the front. Um, to get that sort of like curved shape at the front, and then they, the concave and convex yeah. opposite sides, but they both curve in the same direction and then taper off to a point. If you want a really, if you want a really good explanation with like video graphics, go watch the um, real engineering videos on the seven eight seven. There we go. Um, I was watching those recently. That's the only reason I could explain. I thought this you were going to say we're going to make one, and I'm like, bloody hell, okay. Um, so it it is this kind of key principle. Do you know what it's called? You told me earlier. I think it's Bernoulli's yeah. principle, right? So this guy Bernoulli is. Um, he did a lot of stuff. He did so much stuff in fluid dynamics. He's just absolute chaos. These, yeah. Um, but the the main Bernoulli principle is yeah this sort of region of low pressure, high pressure correlating with um, high speed, low speed. Um, and there are some really cool. Yeah. Uh, he did an experiment on it by having this like tube that was thicker at both ends and thinner in the middle, and then you could measure the velocity in those regions because the thinner tube has higher pressure, um, and the outer tube, the the fatter tube, has lower pressure. Um, if you think about trying to squish uh, a balloon, for example, you're increasing the pressure uh, in that area by decreasing the yeah. the area volume. Volume, thank you. Um, and it, it's the same sort of thing with fluid dynamics. And everything wants to leave a high pressure environment. So, yeah. But it, it's really cool. I remember when I did my, I think I was in second year of undergrad when we did aerofoil and we learned that this is what gives the lifting force. And mm. it's just one of those, like, I think it's such a nice introduction to fluid dynamics because you're like, that's so cool. Yeah. And oftentimes when you meet people in the street and you say you do fluid dynamics, uh, as you do, um, they ask how do planes fly, so it's a good one to have in your back pocket. It's like, oh, it's just Bernoulli's principle, isn't it? Yeah, like I've managed to do the basic instruction to fluid mechanics at the end of episode three. Yeah. Ish. <laughs> this is all in the wrong order. It's fine. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll end off with hi, I'm Cat. I do a PhD in fluid dynamics. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, good discussion on a couple of different things there. I think we've. We've covered a decent um, a decent amount of things. Obviously, if you have further questions on any of the things we've discussed along the lines of um, personal experiences of PhD applications, interviews, um, we're not going to look over everyone's personal statement. Please do not send us them. Um, I was going to say when you started talking, I'm like, I... No. No. That no. being said, we're more than willing to have chats in a broader sense yeah about things specifically the best way to get us to actually respond to things is suggest topics for us to talk about in our podcast because this is time that we have to talk about this sort of stuff exactly um, and we should hopefully be doing this more regularly he says cursing us um oh yeah and undoubtedly <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah Listen, the podcast the... comes out when the podcast comes out okay yeah exactly the easiest way to actually contact us if you want to ask any questions give feedback suggest topics for future episodes of the podcast is either contact us on social media so instagram we are at unstable fluid podcast and on twitter well it's not twitter anymore on x the platform not formerly known as twitter we are at unstable fluid and if you want to email us that is unstable fluid podcast at gmail.com thank you for coming with us on this chaotic journey through episode three and uh, we will see you in episode four when that eventually comes out yep all of the things. Look after yourselves. See you next time. Or hear you next time. Wait, we won't. We, we won't, won't hear them. I'll hear you, though.
So I stand by what I said. I could just turn the mic off. <laughs>